Our Father, it is to a King that we come. It is not one who stayed crucified, but the one who by the power of God has been risen from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. The very King of kings is the one that we worship this morning. And Father, we pray that what will happen today is indeed our hearts will be swept away by the magnitude, by the, by the sovereignty of the God that we have come to call our Father in heaven. It is a king that we celebrate. It is not some pauper. It is not a, a defeated uh, uh, ruler. It is the king. It is King Jesus whose birth we celebrate at this time of year. And so, Father, gather up the hearts of your people and bring them into one grand, glad Hosanna. Because we are a people who have benefited forever as a result of what this King has accomplished on Calvary's cross. Lord, we thank you for the season. Indeed, it is a refreshment to our souls. It's like a breath of fresh air breathes over our stale and stagnant souls each time, each year at this time. Thank you for the life and the vitality that we feel. Thank you for the, the sense of newfound devotion and love for Christ that we have. And I pray, Father, that you will use us. To advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ in that alone. We've come into being to do much for Jesus. To make much of Jesus. To say much of Jesus. To give much to Jesus. And oh, might that Jesus be worshipped aright in this place today. Father, thank you for the privilege of pastoring among a group of people. Who are becoming more and more determined to see the Great commission accomplished in our midst. With these monies that they give today, O oh God, advance the kingdom of our King just that much further. Might new people be born anew and afresh as a result of the investment that we make both in terms of our gifts and our passions and our monies. Father, get glory from your people and this is our privilege that we get to give you and, and, and express tangibly that we love you. We are sorry we love you so little. But by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, grant that we might love you more. We pray, as always, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Take your Bibles, if you will, now, and open them with me to... Um, Genesis chapter 3. And let's read once again from a book that is inspired, inerrant, the, the very mind of God in print. You follow as I read, beginning at verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers. And the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. Gang, I I don't know how much you knew about uh, Genesis 3 before you got here this morning. I don't know what your opinions were of Genesis chapter 3 before you came this morning. But let let me start out by saying this. Genesis 3 is not just another chapter of Scripture. Uh, it's not just another, you know, Ezra 3 or First Chronicles 17, not, not to uh, denigrate those chapters, but uh, compared to Genesis chapter 3, it's, uh, this is a far more important and significant chapter. You will never understand redemption. You will never understand salvation until you rightly understand, at least in part, what is contained in Genesis chapter 3. The great drama of human redemption begins here. In Genesis chapter 3, Christianity finds the bases for some of the most cardinal doctrines of our faith, ladies and gentlemen. Interestingly enough, Darwinism not only denies Genesis 1, it also denies Genesis 3 suggesting that man's present imperfections, that those would gradually disappear as we all evolved upward. All we needed was more education. Yeah, right. 
That was before World War I and then World War II and the Holocaust and the killing fields of the Khmer Rouge and Bosnia. Evolution, ladies and gentlemen, has no explanation for the universality of sin, which is a fact. That is, the universality of sin is a fact which is confirmed with each new day in the morning newspaper. Tell me, when you look at the world today, do you see man getting better and better? Well, you're supposed to if you're an evolutionist. Genesis 3 will lead you to a much different conclusion. Genesis 3 provides an explanation for the human dilemma. That, by that I mean, it explains to us why people fight so. Why, why Arabs hate Americans and why a husband hates a wife and why management hates labor and why labor hates management. And it's in Genesis 3 that we gain an insight into all the in, in all that plagues the human race, tell me, ladies and gentlemen, does 9-11, does that, does that strike you as an illustration of a highly devolved moral, evolved moral man? Huh? I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, that understanding Genesis 3 is... is is essential for an accurate world view, as well as a decent understanding of myself, understanding Genesis 3 will color, it, it, it will color how you view everything, including ourselves. Now, if all that that I just said is true, ladies and gentlemen, that would mean that this is pretty important stuff. So I invite you to listen carefully. Let me first of all uh, remind you of the context that is of Genesis 3. Let me tell you where we find it. This, of course, comes right on the heels of uh, Genesis 2. And the last half of Genesis 2 is where Adam is naming all the animals and uh, Eve is brought alongside and marriage is instituted. Um, I read one fellow, his name is Tim Gardner, and he describes what Adam had just watched. And he does it like this, I'm quoting. He says, a long parade of warthogs, hippos, orangutans, and every other type of creature, all coming before him in pairs of twos. They all had dates. Now, feeling very much alone, Adam awakes to find not another furry, four-footed mammal, but a woman. A ravishing, delightful, completely naked woman. How do you think he reacted? As the old joke goes, I think Adam's response was a full-fledged top of the lungs. And then he said, whoa, man, which is where we got the name woman. That's not true, ladies and gentlemen, but according to Tim Gardner, at least it gives you a sense of the context. You'll notice um, that the chapter two closes with both of them being naked and unashamed. 
There was in that relationship an openness, a comfort level that they were enjoying. And then Genesis 3 opens up with the introduction of the serpent. And very soon thereafter, sin crashes the party. And the forces of disintegration are unleashed. Every broken body, every disturbed mind, every hurting human relationship, every dysfunctional marriage, the collective tears of human history can trace their origin back to Genesis chapter 3. Ladies and gentlemen, if anything has evolved upward, it's sin. And what you get in Genesis 3 is sin, though devastating, you you find sin in its simplest. But we have seen fit to tease it out over the, the centuries. But let me show you a couple of examples of those forces of disintegration that I just mentioned. The first one's mentioned in verse 7. There is now a realization that they're naked. Now, they had been naked before. They were naked up in Genesis chapter 2, 25. But now something is new. There's something shameful that is now attached to their nakedness. Suddenly, shame appears. Where heretofore, there had been none. There's a discomfort. That replaces the comfort. There's a, there's a distance that had, that now replaces the intimacy. What you're seeing, ladies and gentlemen, in first, verse seven and then for the rest of the book is, is the, the development or the creation, we could say, of an operative conscience. The conscience comes into being. Something that unfallen man did not have. Sin instantly destroys their innocence. There's something inside of them now that tells them that they're liable for punishment. A guilty conscience. You know where that came from? Sin. How? Well, ladies and gentlemen, now they have a knowledge of both good and evil, and the two can be compared. And and when the comparison takes place, when I examine good versus evil, there is inside me an ache. Something inside that tells me there's something bad in me. And so, when I discover that, I begin to toss and turn at night. My peptic ulcer is, is aggravated, so I, I snap at my wife and I drink three beers instead of one. Where did this thing come from? This, this aching conscience of ours. I, I didn't make the thing. I, I wouldn't ever set up some accuser, some judge, some, some attacker of my soul. 
Gang, there is a sense of right and wrong now in Adam. There is, a, there is something inscribed on him that was not there before. It's a knowledge now that there's good and there's evil. And when I begin to compare my behavior next to that knowledge, I find... Ugh, by the way, evolution would never teach you that. It's called natural law, ladies and gentlemen. And natural law simply states that there is an inscription, that, the, that a knowledge of right and wrong is inscribed on your hearts. It's one of the marks of being a creature. You remember several years ago, um, some of you are too young to remember this, but Gosh, I guess it was in the Reagan administration that I forget who nominated Clarence Thomas for the Supreme Court. He's now a Supreme Court justice. And you remember in the hearings that were the confirmation hearings of Clarence Thomas that he uh, he got himself into big trouble with a senator from Massachusetts by the name of Kennedy. And the reason that he got himself in such hot water with Kennedy was because he mentioned that he believed in natural law. You know, there was somebody else that got themselves in hot water because they mentioned natural law. Me. I had been called to jury duty, and um, which is just as inconvenient for me as it is for anybody else. But, you know, as much as we hate jury duty, ladies and gentlemen, the judicial system needs us. They need voices and, and minds and hearts and souls like you in, in those jury boxes. But it is inconvenient, and I know that. But anyway, I, I, of course, as a preacher, I used to get out of it. But uh, no more. So I went down there to serve my, my uh, two weeks or whatever it was. And, and in the course of that two weeks of my jury duty, I was called into a jury, into a case. And, and um, it was a murder one. And so as we all, there was about 50 of us in the jury, in the courtroom. And, and so they uh, began to name out names or call out names to get in the jury box. And uh, juror number eight was moi. So I made my way up to the jury box, and so both attorneys began to examine us. You know, the prosecutor would come by, and he would ask questions, and, and uh, the defense attorney would come by and, and ask questions, and neither one of them asked me a question, and I just sat there. I guess I looked you know, like an honest Joe. And then, so one of them, and I forget what it was, whether it was a prosecutor or the defense attorney, one of them says, is there anybody who has anything that they think might influence their service in this jury? So I raised my hand. And I said, I think it would be necessary for the court to realize that I believe in natural law. And the, 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 the attorney kind of stiffened and, and uh, well, Mr. Young, uh, uh, what do you mean by natural law? And I said, well, it's the same thing that Clarence Thomas meant. Um, that is, that there is inscribed on the hearts of every man a knowledge of good and evil. At that point, he waved to the other attorney, and they quickly approached the judge's bench. There was a little conversation of which I was not made privy. And um, they went on about their business, and then they got to the, the portion where they read off the names of people that would no longer be needed for jury service. 
the top of that list, numero uno, Mr. Young, thanks but no thanks. Don't call us. We'll call you. I, I lost my spot in the jury. Because of something that I believe, ladies and gentlemen, about Genesis 3. Because what you find taking place in verse 7 here is a knowledge that Adam and Eve had that was now written on their hearts that produced shame. There was an awareness that had never been there before that when I measure the good against the bad, I come up in the negative column. As a result, ladies and gentlemen, of the entrance of sin, there is now this still small voice that tells me that I am not my own master. It tells me that I am responsible to a higher law. And when I examine myself by that higher law, I don't do so good. You know, I'm told that psychiatric hospitals are filled with people who can't quiet that little voice. You know, the greatest illustration of all, I think, is a short story written by Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, the Telltale Heart. I think I've mentioned it before in here. Did, did you read that little short story? It's, um, it's a story about a man who kills, murders his neighbor, and then he hides his neighbor underneath the, the floor of his apartment. And when the police come over to inspect for the murder, and they're looking around, they can't find anything, and so the police leave and think, well, you know, I don't know what happened. And, and uh, as, as time unfolds, the, the murderer begins to think that he hears the beating of the dead man's heart. And it begins with a... Thump, 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 thump. And then as time goes on, it goes thump, 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 thump. And by the end of the story, it's thump, 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 thump. It drives him crazy. That's the end of the story. You know where that came from? Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. I read a story. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was kind of cute myself. It was a story about uh, the Pope and the Pope, um, uh, Pope John the Twenty-Third, who is really one of the most beloved popes of the 20th century. But uh, Pope John uh, went to a party one night, and and into this party walks this very immodestly dressed woman with this plunging neckline, and so. Um, he left the party and he remarked to his friend, he said, um, you know, one of the problems about being the Pope is that normally when a woman like that enters the room, everybody looks at her. But when you're the Pope and a woman like that enters the room, everybody looks at me. And that's what's happened, ladies and gentlemen. The eyes of your soul, all of the eyes of the soul have, have now opened and what they see is this gaping hole in my soul. 
and that hole aches. And I can't do anything about it. And so I drink more. And I stay up at night. And I, I, you know, I wonder how much of our behavior is, is the result of just a bad conscience. You know, they had jokes about people like that. Here's where it came from, ladies and gentlemen. The other thing that I want you to see is what they do in verse 8 is that they hide. They hide from God, yes, but they also hide from each other. They, they erect a barrier. The first signs of mutual estrangement are right here. What you have here in embryo form is all of the mistrusts and all of the dysfunctions in human relationships that will ravage society from this day forward. You know, guys, to know and to be known... That is to be naked and unashamed before another human being. That, that, that was once the greatest joy of Adam and Eve. And now, it has become the greatest fear of the human race. There is a tendency in human relationships to hide. And we see it from crib to grave. You know, somebody said that, that one of the reasons that we like children so much is that they haven't yet learned to hide their feelings. But they'll get over it. I mean, they grow up and we send them off to junior high. Tony Campolo said that he, he agrees with the Roman Catholics. There is a purgatory. And it's called junior high. It's the place that you have to go to pay for your sins. You know, to be known and liked in junior high is just about as close to heaven as you're going to get. But the hiding has begun. And they grow up a little more and they start dating a member of the opposite sex. I hope. And then the first real crisis in the dating relationship occurs when the man, for the first time, sees this woman without makeup. You know, makeup is the art of facial management. But, but hiding acne, ladies and gentlemen, is peanuts. Compared to our attempts at hiding our, our resentments and our failures and our insecurities. We share bodily secrets. We, we'll share our bodies with all kinds of people. We'll do that readily and quickly. But I'm not going to share my real self with just about anybody. And then, here's a question for you women. Have you ever known a man who has any kind of communication problems? Well, my girls were still at home and, um, and dating. You know, they were all teenagers at the same time and all dating. And they would all come home and, on occasion and describe men. And one of the words that I remember that they used so often about men was, oh, he's a grunter. You know the kind. 
the adults, the, the grunters. Now tell me, men, is college football really that meaningful? Because it must be. We talk about it a whole lot. Gang, we, we aren't hiding in the bushes anymore. We're hiding in careers and we're hiding in things or we're hiding in bravado. Anything that allows me to appear together and will allow me to forget my accountability before God. God comes walking in the cool of the day and Adam and Eve, they don't run to meet him, they hide. Because the switch has been pulled. Darkness has settled in upon their consciences and they're helpless in making it right. The only thing they know how to do is hide. I, I'm afraid of standing before you naked and unashamed, but that doesn't compare to how uncomfortable I am in standing before God. You know, tell me, why, why do you think today the Bible is so neglected? Why do you think church is so unattended? In, in, in face of all the excuses, at the bottom of all of it, ladies and gentlemen, he makes me uncomfortable. Not me. Him. He makes me uncomfortable. You'll notice in verse 10 that it's, it's the first mention of fear. That sweet communion between Adam and God is gone. And I think it's also significant that by Adam's own admission, the reason for his fear is not to be found in God. It's found in himself. And in response to these, this unleashing of forces of disintegration, here's what they do. They make a, an attempt at saving themselves. A strategy of cover-up. Instead of seeking God and owning their guilt, they hide. And they try to produce some cover that, uh, behind which they can hide. One that they themselves devised and, and created. Oh, how modern. I'm uncomfortable with the thoughts of a God, and so this is the way I'll deal with it. I'll, uh, I'll uh, you know, commit myself to a path of uh, endless good performance. I'll impress my church folk, and I'll impress the Kiwanis Club, and I'll impress the neighborhood. And then when it's all said and done, I'll be fine. But it's not only fig leaves that's a part of their strategy, ladies and gentlemen. The other part of their strategy is that they, they master the fine art of blame shifting. Adam starts in verse 12. Notice how the text repeats, gave me. He is passing the buck as fast as he can do it. First to Eve and then to God. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. She gave me the fruit, but you gave me the woman. He blames her, though there's not the slightest possibility in the world that he married the wrong woman. And then it's Eve's turn, the serpent. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker that says, Humpty Dumpty was pushed? Have you ever seen that? I mean, it's out there. 
Because the mess that we make is always somebody else's fault. I lost my job because of company politics. I lost my temper because I got low blood sugar. I lost my virginity because my daddy never told me he loved me. Instead of a simple yes to God's question, they launched this self-protection scheme that consists of fig leaves and blame-shifting. Adam betrays his own wife to save his skin. Sin turns Adam into a coward and a liar. Protect self at all cost. Throw him under the bus. Blame anybody. But don't blame yourself. Did you think that yours was the only marriage where you blame each other for the problems? Blame, denial, evasion, they're all forms of hiding, ladies and gentlemen. They have plagued the human race ever since Genesis 3. And as a result of all this, God says that both of them will experience painful labor. Adams will come in a field. He, uh, he's going to find that the ground will fight him. It will produce thorns and weeds and, and sorrow and sweat and toil. He'll experience economic downturns and he'll experience corporate downsizings. And Eve, hers will show up in the delivery room. And then we're told in verse 23, they're expelled. Kicked out. And who was that that was kicked out? That was, oh, that was Adam. You know, the one that was made from dirt. And the dirt. Aspired to be God? Is that the end of the story? No, that's not, ladies and gentlemen. There is in this text an overture of grace contained in verses 9 and following. God comes to Adam and Eve and says, where are you? Those, by the way, are God's first words to a fallen man. And I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, notice who is it that seeks whom? A.W. Tozer calls this prevenient grace. That is, God always comes first. Because as Paul taught you, ladies and gentlemen, there is none that seeketh after God. None. My friend, you sit here this morning as a saved man or woman because God sought you first. Had he not, you would have never sought him. But the question is designed not so much to find out where Adam is located... The question is something like this, ladies and gentlemen. It's, Adam, where has sin gotten you? Is this the knowledge, Adam, that you thought would make you so much happier? Where did your sin take you, Adam? What what has your sin gotten you, Adam? Gang, is there anybody in this room 
that can point to one benefit of your sinning. Can anybody point to one example of how your sin has improved your life? Can you, can you identify one thing that's gone on that, boy, I sure am glad I did that because that's made me a, a much better person. One thing. Where did it get you? Did your sin take you where you thought you wanted to go? Did it produce what you hoped it would? And I want you to note, ladies and gentlemen, that it was no one could have blamed God had he never sought Adam and Eve again. But here is the gospel. He did. He did seek them again. Just like he sought you and me. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your biblical worldview. Three points. Your view of life ought to be adjusted in light of this chapter in these ways. First of all, we are fallen and we can't get up. All the king's horses and all the king's men can't put Jimmy Young back together again. We want to do right, but we are prepared to do wrong. The reformers call that the doctrine of total depravity. That there is within all of us a propensity, a proclivity to love sin, but at the same time, no ability to save self. Though we try with all kinds of self-salvation strategies. Number two, our eternities depend on getting found. There's no healing in hiding. Christ died, my friends, in the darkness so that we can live in the light. Come out of the bushes. And then third, We're told that Adam leaves the garden, but he doesn't leave it naked. But his nakedness is covered not by him, but by something that God has done for him. There is no self-salvation, so give it up. What you can't do, God has done for you in Christ. So take him. Only grace, ladies and gentlemen, will equip you to stand naked and unashamed in the presence of God. By the way, where are you? Father, I do pray that you will um, adjust everything that we 
believe, everything that we think in accord with this, this, this piece of redemptive history that tells us exactly what has happened and why. Father, the the solution to this human dilemma is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I pray that people here might have settled that long ago. But if they have not, might they discover the beauty of the God-provided Savior, the one who hung from a cross, accomplishing all that was needed, And then assured me that it was finished. Everything that my sin deserved had been accomplished by him. And so, Father, with simple hands of faith, we lay hold of the finished work of Jesus Christ for us. It is our joy and our privilege to do so. Thank you that you sought us after we spent so many years rebelling at you. Some of us thumbed our noses in your face, O God. We spent 22, 32, 42, 52, 62 years thumbing our noses. And then you chased us down and brought us out of hiding. And now have clothed us in the the righteous robes of Christ Jesus the Lord. Oh, we above all people on the face of the planet have something to celebrate. We celebrate the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray.